My name is Wayne Smith. Uh, it's good to be with you this morning. I'm going to have the honor of uh, sharing God's word, word with you this week and for the next two weeks to come. Uh, I work at Masses Academy, which is a ministry of our church, meets right here on our campus. Um, and I'm looking forward to sharing an update with you about Masses Academy this afternoon. At what time? <laughs> Amen. We are in Acts chapter 4, but before we read from Acts chapter 4, we are going to read from Matthew chapter 10. And for the next few weeks, we are going to talk about the gospel. This morning, we will talk about the gospel and offensive message. Next week, we will look at the gospel and unwavering commitment. And then in two weeks' time, we will look at the gospel, a respectful messenger. The word gospel means good news, and the good news is that Jesus Christ has died and paid for your sin, to set you free from sin. And the gospel, in many respects, is offensive in nature. Greg Kokel, a great defender of the Christian faith, said, the gospel is offensive enough, don't add to the offense. We'll talk more about that in two weeks' time. But the gospel is offensive in method. The gospel comes after us. God comes after us. God pursues us. He steps into our world. He arrests our spirit. He gets our attention. The gospel is offensive in its message. It exposes our sin. That isn't always comfortable. In fact, it probably never is comfortable when God exposes our sin. It's not my job to offend you. It's not my job to make you feel uncomfortable or to convict you. That's the job of the Holy Spirit. And so today, we're going to look at the offensive gospel message through the lens of Acts chapter 4. But let's start in Matthew chapter 10. Matthew 10. Jesus is uh, gathering with his uh, disciples. It's not too far into his three-year ministry and he's preparing them for the days and years to come. He says this, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be as wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. And we're all excited, saying, Bring it on, Lord. I'm willing to be dragged before kings and governors and courts. Would you like to avoid that? <laughs> Would you kind of fudge your, minister, your stance on the Lord Jesus Christ to not be dragged before kings and courts and governors? I want to tell you the story about a young lady by the name of Emily Brooks. Today, Emily is probably in her late 20s or early 30s, and you can watch her story online in YouTube. Uh, the video is called The Toughest Test in College. I would encourage you to go and watch that. The Toughest Test in College. Well, this young lady was a senior at the University of Missouri, Missouri State University. And it was the first semester, and she was looking forward to graduating in about five or six months. 
her sociology professor gave the class an assignment where they were required to advocate for a certain sexual practice that Emily could not support. And it was a group assignment, and she was devastated. She went to the professor and asked the professor for an alternate assignment, and the professor said no. The professor was forcing this young Christian lady to advocate for something that at her core, in her moral being, as in, in a stand before God, she could not do. But it was a group assignment. So she contributed to the group in research and writing. And when it came to the day, and the professor required them to sign the paper affirming this position. And Emily could not sign it. Her professor was offended. And he filed a charge against her with the university's disciplinary committee. And young Emily was dragged before this disciplinary committee to defend her faith. Are you a sinner? Are we sinners? Or is this group that you're refusing to advocate for, are they sinners? Are you better than them? Why can't you advocate for them? Those are tough questions. Well, the result was that the professor was forced to throw out the assignment, gave the class a new assignment, but Emily was given a long list of do's and don'ts for the rest of college. And they told her, you contravene just one of these and you're out. This is in the land of the free, in the home of the brave. Missouri State University, I'm not, I don't have an axe to grind against that, that university, but what happened to her happens across this, universe, across this country day after day after day. She actually fulfilled Matthew 10, didn't she? where she was brought before kings and governors and councils to testify to her faith. I'm sure that after the death of Jesus, the religious leaders were celebrating. We've gotten rid of this fanatical group from Galilee. Wannabe messiahs have come and gone. And this little group caused a stir. We had the leader executed and maybe they're just going to go away. Except for one thing. Jesus promises followers, I will build my church. In Acts chapter 2, we see the birth of this church. The resurrection of Jesus Christ has happened in the day of Pentecost, and Peter preaches, and 3,000 are saved. Jerusalem is a big city, and this group is active. But it doesn't seem like they're causing much of a stir, and we shouldn't, as Christians, go and look for trouble. But at the same time, we don't keep quiet about our faith. Stephen Meyer, one of the directors of the Discovery Institute, said this, if your beliefs are based only on private experience, you'll keep those beliefs in the private sphere. But if you have a confidence that your beliefs are based on publicly accessible evidences and good arguments based on those evidences, you will take your beliefs, your faith, into the public arena. And you will act on it in public, and you will begin to make a difference in the wider world. I'm sure the religious leaders had hoped that this group would either go away or the followers would just keep quiet, and neither of those was going to happen. 
So a few months after the birth of the Christian church, Peter and John are going to the temple. So it was a regular practice of theirs. There's no indication from the text that they were going to look for trouble. And they enter the temple, and as we saw last week and the week before, a layman reaches out and asks for some money, and Peter and John says, we've got nothing to give you, but what we can give you is Jesus Christ. The lame beggar is healed. It causes a bit of a commotion. Crowds gather. They want to hear. And this is an opportunity for Peter to speak, and he does. And chapter 4 details the first ever clash between the Christian worldview and the earthly or man's worldview. And those clashes have been happening for 2,000 years ever since. So that takes us into Acts chapter 4. Let's read. Acts chapter 4, verse 1. As they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them. <laughs> Three people or groups of people came upon Peter and John. The priests, those who officiated at the temple, the captain of the temple, that's the second in command under the high priest. It was this guy's job to make sure that the temple functioned properly. And then the Sadducees. The Sadducees was a very powerful religious group. There were several religious groups. The three most dominant were the Pharisees, the Essenes, and the Sadducees. And the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. They did not believe in life after death. The Sadducees believed that we live, we die, and then it's over. And that's why they're so sad, you see. I didn't, I didn't come up with that, but it's pretty good. And so these groups gather around Peter and John in verse 3, and they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers, their elders, their scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And we say, wow, this is a formidable group coming up, coming up against two fishermen from Galilee. Now, I can get very sarcastic at this point and try and balance the wisdom in the room, try and balance the insight, even though there's a group with more credentials. I won't go there. But just look at this list of people that are being gathered to oppose Peter and John. Elders, rulers, elders, and scribes. Those are members of the Sanhedrin. A very significant, powerful, ruling civic group. Together with Annas, the high priest. Now, he wasn't high priest at this time. Um, his son-in-law, Caiaphas, is. John and Alexander. Scholars aren't too sure who they were, but they think John was a priest. Very wise priest. In fact, there's an ancient inscription that says, when John the priest died, wisdom died with him. Now, I don't believe that to be true, but that might refer to this John. And he has a friend, Alexander, and, and some Bible scholars believe that this was an Alexander who was very wealthy, gave a lot of money to the temple, and then the high priest family. What a group that they've gathered to oppose Peter and John. Let's look at verse 7. Before we read that, Peter and John are in serious trouble, right? 
And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Seems as if these men are unsure what charge to bring against Peter and John. They can't dispute the good deed. The beggar, the lame beggar is standing right there with them. Now, we don't know the circumstances. Why is the, biggest, the, the lame guy who was healed standing there? Was he arrested with Peter and John? We're not sure. Did they bring him in the next day? I'm not sure. But he's there, and we know that from the text. They can't dispute the good deed. They can't dispute the message. So what do they do? They go after the messengers. But yet there's something different about Peter and John. There's something different about these men. They're uneducated, ordinary men, but they have this deep conviction, this peace about them. Even though they're standing before one of the most powerful, if not the most powerfully grouped individuals, Jewish individuals in the land of Israel, they have this confidence about them. So in whose name did you do this? I wonder if John nudged Peter. You talk, you talk. Or Peter nudged John. You talk. Or maybe Peter just said, John, I'm going to respond. Verse 8. Then Peter. I read a lot into those two words. If you know the life of Peter, you would read a lot into those two words. Let's, let's wind back the clock about three and a half years. Peter is on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. He has had a night of fishing and he's caught nothing. I know exactly what that is like. And Jesus walks along the shore and says, Peter, follow me. And Peter runs up to Jesus and falls on his hands and knees and says, Lord, away from me. I am a sinful man. But Peter follows Jesus. Sometime later, in Matthew 16, Jesus is talking to his followers and he's preparing them for the, for the months and years to come. And he says, many of you will fall away from me. And Peter, and Peter says, never, Lord. <laughs> never will that happen. And Jesus responds and basically says, Peter, you've got no idea what's coming. Later on, literally hours before Jesus is arrested, Jesus is gathered with his 12 and he says to them, this night, some of you will fall away. And Peter says, Lord, I will not. And then Jesus says, Peter, this night you're going to deny me. And Peter says, Lord, I will not. About an hour or two later, through the question of a young lady, Peter's courage just crumbles and denies Jesus. Then Peter before the same group that condemned Jesus, probably in the same very room that Jesus stood just a few months earlier, they're challenging Peter on his faith. And then Peter responds. Let's read on, verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, that's it. Peter had been with Jesus. He's filled with God's Holy Spirit, you and I cannot adequately explain this to the cynics. How do you explain the change in Peter's life? How do you explain the change in anyone's life after they've met the Lord? The power of the Holy Spirit is drawing 
us, drawing you and me into faith in Jesus Christ, empowering people to make a stand, empowering young ladies before a disciplinary committee of one of the major universities in this country to stand firm in her faith. How do you explain that? Peter had no worldly motive to stand firm. He was not poised to get wealth or fame. There were no hopes of any special honor. In fact, there was a lot to risk, humanly speaking. The point is is that you can't kill truth. You can try and muzzle it, shut it up, ban it, ridicule it, argue against it, but you cannot kill it. And nothing but the truth explains Peter's remarkable change. So Peter answers boldly, verse 8, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders. Peter's respectful. He's acknowledging their position. If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed? Kind of a little subtle sarcasm there, maybe. Verse 10, let it be known to all of you and to all people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, there is no evasion with Peter. Whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him, this man, obviously pointing to the guy next to him, this man standing before you well. Have you ever realized, reading this passage, that those articulate, scholarly individuals never challenged Peter on the resurrection? They had paid Roman soldiers to lie about the whereabouts of Jesus' dead body. If they could have produced it, they would have said so there and then, Peter, this is a lie. But they never challenged Peter on the resurrection The resurrection of Jesus Christ is one of the most studied, if not the most studied, scrutinized, argued, and debated event in the ancient world. And never once has any shred of evidence been suggested to refute the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. In fact, men, extremely intelligent men and women, have studied the resurrection with the intent of trying to disprove it, and it has often backfired on them. Lee Strobel a criminal journalist from the Chicago Tribune, C.S. Lewis, a medieval professor of literature, or uh, rather, professor of medieval literature, Francis, Francis Collins, the head of the Human Genome Project, Josh McDowell, all of them, atheists or agnostics, studied the resurrection and came to the conclusion that Jesus is who he claimed to be, that Jesus rose from the dead. Literally within months, Peter has been challenged about his faith. No question from these skeptics about the resurrection. Let's read on, verse 11. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. I'll come back to that verse in a moment. And then verse 12. I need to warn you, this is the verse that our world hates. This is the doctrine that causes them to get mad with us and call us all kinds of vile things. 
Verse 12. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given by man by which we must be saved. How dare you proclaim that Jesus is the only means of salvation? How dare you say that Jesus is the only path to the Father? That's bigotry, fanaticism. Comments like that do not belong in the public square. They hate speech. Wouldn't invent this. Pathway Church didn't come up with this doctrine. There's no council or ecclesiastically elected official that came up with this doctrine. It's not what I think and it's not what you think. What is, that, what is it that the Bible says? What is it that Jesus taught? Peter said it's in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name only. It's the only name on earth that people swear by. Have you ever heard somebody swear by Tiger Woods? No. But they'll take Jesus Christ's name in vain. They'll ridicule those who honor his name. But it is the only name by which we can be saved. He is God in the flesh. He is the foundation upon which the universe rests. He is the creator of all things. He is the head of the church. And he died for you and for me and for Jew and Greek and slave and free and man and woman. No one else in history has had more books written about them. No one else in history has had more songs written about them. No one else in history has healed more broken hearts. No one else in history has mended more damaged families and given more hope to lost souls. For 2,000 years, Jesus has transformed alcoholics, purified prostitutes, made liars tell the truth, turned haters into lovers, turned wife beaters into loving husbands, cleaned up cursing mouths, and saved souls from hell. Amen? Amen? Every other religion on earth has one thing in common. Their founder is dead. And we can confidently say that Jesus is alive. But you can say that as sweetly as you possibly can, and someone will still get offended. And so that raises two words. People will say, well, Christianity is too, uh, or Christianity should be more inclusive. You should be open to more people and more population groups and more cultures. And then they will say, well, Christianity is too exclusive. It's too narrow, it's too narrow-minded. And my response to that is Christianity is actually both inclusive and exclusive. In Matthew eleven twenty-eight, Jesus says, Come to me all who are weary, and I will give you rest. In John three sixteen, that whosoever believes on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. It's inclusive. Anyone who hears the word of the Lord, anyone who feels God drawing them to, him, to himself. There's no one excluded. No population group, or no culture, or no ethnicity excluded. But Christianity is very exclusive. In John chapter 1, John, John the Baptist pointing to Jesus says, He is the Lamb that takes away the sins of the world. John 14, verse 6, Jesus said of himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. 
First Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, and that is Christ Jesus. In Yarin Acts chapter 4, verse 12, Peter says, There is salvation in no one else. A salvation that's as wide as the world, as deep as every misery that you could ever think of, but it is found in one person, one Savior. Does this offend you? It ought to. It ought to arrest our spirit. The teaching and preaching of God's word ought to, ought to stir us, ought to cause us to think, ought to cause us to look inside and examine our hearts and souls and minds. The teaching of God's word is never or should never be designed just to tickle your ears. We're not yet to make you feel good. This isn't pop psychology 101. In fact, if you come to this church week after week after week and you're not offended by the teaching, then either the teaching is problematic or there's something wrong with you. The gospel is offensive. It offends us. It stirs our spirit. It gets us to think. And it causes us, hopefully causes us, to change our mind, to make decisions. If you're like those stubborn, hard-hearted, narrow-minded religious leaders that Peter and John stood before, you would tell me to shut up. I will not. But if you're like those 3,000 on the day of Pentecost when Peter preached the first New Testament sermon, you will ask, what shall I do? The answer is simple. Repent and be baptized. In closing, I want to suggest to you two pictures, two two beautiful pictures of salvation that is in this text. The first one is the rejected cornerstone. In chapter 4, verse 11, Peter said, This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. There is an ancient legend when the building of the temple took place that the masons were... Uh, I'm carving up the blocks, and they had carved this one block, this one stone that was, they thought was just perfect, and they rolled it up the hill, and they put on the temple mount, and then some inspectors came, and they inspected all of the stones and the rocks, and, and they saw this one, and they didn't think it looked very good, and it didn't fit, so they rolled it down the other side and dropped it among all of these reject stones. And then the builders came along, and the foundation was dug, and the builders, and they were looking for a special stone to start the building, and they couldn't find it. They went to the masons and they said, where's the stone, the special stone? They said, well, we carved it. We rolled it up the mountain, but it's not there. So they went down the other side and they saw in this bunch of reject stones, they found this big rock, this big stone that had been carved. They rolled it back up the mountain and they put it in the corner of the foundation and it fit just perfectly. There's a prophecy about that. Psalm 118, verse 22 the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. In ancient building, the cornerstone was a very, very important starting point. It's from which the whole building took shape. The whole building took direction from that cornerstone. And in a sense, that cornerstone anchored the building. Peter says to these religious leaders, you guys, you're the builders, you rejected the cornerstone." But he has become the chief cornerstone. And he's the one that anchors the universe. And he's the one that anchors our lives. 
And my challenge to you this morning is what is anchoring your life? What is it that you take direction from? The second image is the image of the lame beggar. You and I are all crippled by sin, in a sense. We are all beggars trying to get through life. We are all grasping at something. Meaning, fulfillment, fortune, fame, sensual pleasure, human recognition, that perfect portfolio. And then God steps into our world. God draws us. God offends us. God stops us in our tracks. And God says, those earthly things that you're grasping for, I offer you none of those. But what I offer you is salvation. What I offer you is freedom from sin, freedom from guilt, perfect peace, and joy, eternal life. You and I are all lame beggars that Jesus wants to make walk again, to leap and jump and joy with joy. Jesus of Nazareth wants to breathe life and purpose into your existence. Today, you can know him, the chief cornerstone. I want to invite you to pray a prayer with me. In fact, I'm going to ask all of you to pray this prayer out aloud. Just a simple, short prayer. And we believe with all our heart that salvation is a prayer away. That if God has stirred your heart this morning, if God has challenged you, and you sincerely pray this prayer, along with everyone else, if you sincerely mean it, today you can be saved. Today you can come to know the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. The prayer does not save you. I do not save you. Pathway Church does not save you. God Almighty saves you. But we believe that you take that step, respond to Him as He calls and as He directs. So will you pray this prayer with me? Pray, pray it out aloud. If you don't know Jesus, you can pray this sincerely. If you have known Jesus, but you've drifted and you have, haven't served Him or you've failed Him in some area and you want to recommit or, or, or you just love the Lord this morning and you want to tell Him again. I want you to pray this prayer. Let's pray. Pray out aloud after me. Dear Lord Jesus, thank you for dying for me. I am a sinner. I confess my sin to you. I invite you into my life to take control. I commit my life to you today. In the one and only name, Jesus Christ. Amen. It's that simple. It's that simple. If you prayed that prayer this morning and committed your life to Him, I want to invite you to take this card and fill your name out and check the box at the bottom of it and come and give it to me or give it to one of our prayer partners if you want to pray with somebody or take it out and put it on the table. We would like to know about this and follow up with you. Where God has stirred you this morning and you want to pray alone, you're welcome to come on this side. Right here this morning, we can come to know the cornerstone, the risen Savior, Jesus Christ. Respond if you want to as the worship team leads us. Let's stand together.
apologize for mentioning that name. Amen. 
1st of April 1978, 40 years ago, I invited Jesus into my life. I have not served Him perfectly since, but I've endeavored with all my heart to serve Him faithfully. And I do not regret a single day, not a day. Today, November 11th, 2018, I hope your name is written in the book of life. Jesus is the only name. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We are so thankful for what you have done for us. Thank you, Lord, for offering us life and life eternal. I pray a blessing on each family, especially our veterans again this morning, that you would encourage them today. Bless every family here in your presence. Married, single, young, not so young. Encourage us all today, I pray, in the name that saves, the name that we call upon, Jesus our Lord. Amen. Amen. God bless you.